All right, well, we'll get started tonight. And, uh, you know, you're free to move closer. I, I can't spit that far, you know. <laughs> but if you want to stay in the back row, that is fine. Um, so tonight, if you grabbed your sermon notes, we're, we're not sermon notes, lesson notes, we're going to have three pages. So front and back of one, they're stapled together, then a third one. Because we're going to be covering something tonight um, that uh, covers quite a bit, and that is the poetical books of Scripture. Now, we're, we're not covering Job. We already have covered that one. It's usually lumped in with these other four uh, to be the five that are referred to as poetry. Um, but uh, we're going to get to that in just a minute. Uh, just to note on our preliminary outline, next week we should have Richard Simmons with us, not the exercise guy. I want to mention that again. Um, but uh, this, this guy is in his mid to late 70s. He was a great Bible teacher. I don't know if he'll have notes, but... Have paper because there's probably going to be a lot of gems to draw out. Uh, he was my Sunday school teacher several years ago at Faith Baptist, and he's a very good teacher. Uh, he recently taught through Isaiah, so it's a good time for him to come and share with us uh, on that. And then a couple weeks later on in February, Jason will be back with us as well. Uh, so just to take note that uh, you won't have to put up with me every week. We do have some other people coming. But if you grab your sermon notes, uh, not sermon notes, I keep saying that. Lesson notes, we got four books tonight, Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, and the Song of Songs, the Song of Solomon, uh, that we're going to take a look at. And so there's a couple of resources there, uh, particularly on Ecclesiastes. It's known as the Search for Meaning. It's a free study guide uh, put together several years ago on my website, if you uh, would find that helpful to dive more into that particular book. And then this is just a good general resource that's really good for really any Bible questions you have, doctrinal questions. I've used this website for probably seven to eight years at this point, and I've never found anything I'm substantially in disagreement with. It's, it's a very good, just biblical, straight biblical answers to questions, common questions people have, and that is gotquestions.org. So I'm going to draw a few things from them even tonight in your notes, and just encourage you to consider that resource when you're teaching or you got a Bible question. They cover just about everything under the sun, um, because if somebody else has asked it, it's probably on their website. All right, so tonight we're going to dive into um, the books that we're covering, these four, and then plus Job, they are known as the poetical books. So that's the only blank you have on page one. They're known as the poetical books. Now, now something interesting about um, particular books of the Bible, a couple of them we're going to cover tonight, and a couple of them we have covered in previous weeks already in the Old Testament, is that some of these books of the Bible were read for certain Jewish feasts. And so... Um, Probably near the end of our Matthew 11 series on Sunday morning, we'll go through probably just one message to understand how that rest was not just uh, something in the New Testament. It was something that the Sabbath and the feasts were supposed to teach Israel. So there's a lot of symbolism. There's a lot of ways in which those things were to point to Christ. Uh, just like with the, uh, the different types of offerings we looked at several weeks ago. But I wanted to share this quote with you from Got Questions about how some of these books were used. Some we're going to look at tonight, some we've already looked at. I'll just go ahead and read it. It kind of adds another layer of meaning on how uh, they used and viewed these books. So the festival scrolls are five books of the Old Testament associated with the Jewish feasts. Each one is read in the synagogues during one of the feasts. There is some variation about the specific time and place of the reading within various branches of Judaism. Here are the five scrolls, or the Migdalot. The Song of Solomon, or the Song of Songs, is read on the Sabbath of Passover week. Ruth is read on Shavuot, which is the, uh, the Feast of Pentecost, which is also we see in Acts chapter 2. So it's the Feast of ingathering, bringing in the grain. Ruth is about bringing in the grain. Then her whole story with, Rome, uh, with uh, Boaz and their romance. And so that is read usually at this particular feast in the synagogue. Lamentations is read on Tish Bav, the ninth day of the month of Av, the, the morning for specifically for the destruction of the first and second temples. So Lamentations was written by Jeremiah around 586 B.C. when the Jewish people are getting ready to go into exile. Because the wall around Jerusalem is destroyed, the temple is destroyed, the city, their nation is in shambles. And Lamentations is lamenting that, but also pointing to the hope that they have in the Lord. And so the Jewish people will read this on this particular day, remembering that destruction. 
But they also remember the destruction of the temple in 70 AD, which was by the Romans. After the Jewish people, for the most part, rejected Christ, the temple was destroyed a second time, Herod's rebuilt temple, in 70 AD. And so they read this and they remember those things. They remember that their center of worship has been destroyed. Ecclesiastes is read on the Sabbath of the week of Sukkoth, the festival of the Feast of Tabernacles or the Feast of Booths. And Esther is read on Purim. And we saw that last week. Purim is a, a holiday that comes out of the book of Esther and probably is something kind of like what we think of of Christmas. They seem to give each other gifts and they celebrate God's favor in their life, God's blessing. Um, and if you go on here, it kind of explains these in more detail. The reason each book is associated with a feast is relatively straightforward in two cases. Esther tells of the origin of the Feast of Purim, which celebrates the deliverance of the Jews from the hands of Haman in Persia. Lamentations is Jeremiah's lament of the fall of Jerusalem and the destruction of the temple at the hands of the Babylonians in 586 B.C. However, the associations of the other books and feasts are not as straightforward. The Feast of Tabernacles calls on Israel to remember their wilderness wanderings and requires the people to live in temporary shelters for a week. And that is something they do. For one week, the whole nation every year is supposed to, in that particular feast, live in a tent again to remind them of their wilderness wanderings and their deliverance. So every year they're supposed to do that. Um, they don't seem to always obey that in the Old Testament, but there was a purpose behind it. And they would read Ecclesiastes during this time, which also calls attention to the transitory and permanent nature of life. And, and it points to how our focus and our real worth in, in life is in Christ alone, in the Lord alone, not in pursuing all the other pursuits that life has to offer. That's essentially what we're going to see in Ecclesiastes tonight. And then finally, there is the... Uh, the Feast of Pentecost, pardon me, that celebrates the traditional end of the harvest in Israel. And since Ruth is set during the time of harvest, it's an appropriate choice. And then finally, the Song of Songs, Song of Solomon, is read during Passover. At one time, a popular Jewish interpretation viewed the book as an allegorical expression of God's love for Israel. And that love was demonstrated supremely in the Passover and the Exodus. And so uh, imagine in your mind with these books, some we've covered, some we're going to cover tonight. They were read publicly by the Jewish people uh, at an annual basis, these particular ones, for a reason to help the Jewish people to remember things about God in their life. Now, on page two of your notes tonight is where you have the vast majority of filling in the blanks. We're going to start with Proverbs. We're going to work our way to Psalms last because Psalms is the longest. But Proverbs is the book about the Lord's wisdom. Uh, wisdom is applying God's truth to life. You could also say it's discernment. Uh, wisdom is not simply having knowledge. You can go to school. You can be very knowledgeable. And you can be very unwise and very undiscerning. And so wisdom is the supreme virtue uh, that the Old Testament calls God's people to have. It doesn't tell them just get really smart, really intelligent. It tells them to seek God's wisdom or his guidance for practical living. Now, this book was originally written to young people. Uh, throughout the book, you see it talk about, hear my son, listen my son. And so uh, not only is it the book of wisdom or guidance for practical living, but it is originally written to young people specifically. And it's, it's a really good place for teenagers to spend a lot of time because it gives that guidance in a wide variety of practical issues and practical questions of life. Just some of those are business, finances, leadership, relationships, conflict, choosing friends, planning, and, and a whole lot of more things. And so Proverbs is a collection of these sayings. And we'll look at just a couple of these together tonight if you want to grab a Bible. I got them there in your notes. And uh, we'll go to Proverbs chapter 1, first of all, because the first seven verses actually tells us why this book was written and to who it's written. And that helps us understand uh, some good ways to apply it and uh, really good lessons for young people for the reason of why it was written. So in Proverbs chapter 1, verses 1 through 7, it says, The Proverbs of Solomon, the son of David, king of Israel. And notice all the things that a pursuit of wisdom is going to, to result in in a believer's life. To know wisdom and instruction, to perceive the words of understanding, to receive the instruction of wisdom, justice, judgment, and equity. Hear a lot about that word equity, it seems, in politics today. 
Uh, we have a lot to learn from the Bible about that and fairness and what true fairness is. Verse 4, to give prudence to the simple, to the young man knowledge and discretion. A wise man will hear and increase in learning. So if you do have wisdom, you'll get even wiser by diving into this book. A man of understanding will attain wise counsel. To understand a proverb and an enigma and the words of the wise and their riddles. Uh, diving into the book of Proverbs can help you understand uh, in many ways a lot of the parables of Jesus. Because it, it helps you understand how the Lord uses story, uses analogy uh, to, to paint a picture. And it says you come to understand a proverb, an enigma, and uh, the words of the wise and their riddles. Because many times Jesus uses a strategy of using parables, which is meant to, to kind of convey and hide a heavenly truth. In a normal story so that those in the crowd will, that are rejecting him will miss it, but those who are seeking him will find it. There's, there's some digging, if you will, required, and that's why he uses that teaching method to help them remember it and to retain it. And then in verse 7, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge, but fools despise wisdom and instruction. And so we're told that fearing God is the foundation of being able to attain uh, knowledge, true knowledge and wisdom. But fools despise this. If we despise God's wisdom and instruction, we're going to miss out on the blessings he's given us, this guidance for life. And so, again, this is written to verse eight. It says, my son, it's written to young people, encouraging them. Uh, don't turn your ear away from the wise when you're young. If you do, that's a very foolish thing to do. Rather, learn those lessons um, and be able to apply them. Now, if we turn to chapter 16 and verse 3, Proverbs also teaches us many, many things. There's lots of Proverbs in here. Uh, each chapter contains, for the most part, many different Proverbs uh, within even one chapter. But in chapter 16 and verse 3, it, it encourages um, the, the reader, it encourages the young person to remember that we got to hold our own understanding, so to speak, our own uh, works in this life loosely. It says, commit your works to the Lord and your thoughts will be established. So it's encouraging a seeking of the Lord, a committing of life and things to him and seeking him not to simply uh, get some wisdom and then think that you know it all, but to have the humility to continue to seek God. And then in chapter 23, 23, a great one for kids to memorize and youth to learn. It's such a powerful truth, Proverbs 23, 23. It, it tells the young person to buy truth. That there is an exchange here. You have to put forth some effort to learn God's word and to hold on to it. Buy the truth and do not sell it. The world will encourage you as a young person to let go of God's truth. That's a constant battle that Satan will try to get you to do. Sell it to exchange it to do something else. So buy the truth and do not sell it. Also wisdom and instruction and understanding. Notice how all of those are uh, tied together. Seeking God's wisdom and having a teachable heart, a, a devotion to instruction and to understanding things. These are all tied together on getting God's truth in our heart and getting it in our mind. And so Proverbs is... Um, this book that is addressing a lot of different areas of practical living. Now, a couple other things to note. Proverbs are wise sayings, but they're not absolute promises. And this particularly comes into play with, with some of the Proverbs that are very well known. And I'll give you an example of that. So one thing that you'll hear in church many times is the proverb, raise a child when they are young, when they're old, they will not depart from it. And that's kind of held to as a promise that if you raise your kids in church, then they will come back. While our prayers for our family should never end, that is a general proverb. It's not saying that it's a guarantee that if you simply take your kids to church and raise them that way, that they will come back. It's not an absolute promise. It's a proverb, a wise saying. But it is giving us a principle of this is a good thing that, it, generally speaking, will draw a positive result. A devotion to being committed to God's house and committed to, to God's church will produce something in our life, generally speaking. But a proverb is a wise saying. It's not an absolute promise. And so when we're looking at poetical books, I think we all understand this in writings outside of the Bible, but sometimes we have difficulty applying this to Scripture. When you speak poetically... And you speak, for example, with a proverb specifically being a wise saying, that's poetical. 
Poetry is not an absolute truth. It, it, it's not something that you look at the same way you do a narrative or you do, uh, for example, a truth of statement, when, uh, statement of Jesus or Paul when they say this is who you are in Christ, this is a theological truth. That's a different genre of writing. So when we're reading the Proverbs, remember that they are wise applications for how to live, but it's not just a list of promises to claim. It is wise instruction for living. It's written to young people on these are the ways to live your life in order to set you up for true success with God. Not necessarily meaning you'll never encounter difficulty in your life or you'll never experience any uh, tragedies or broken um, experiences or relationships in your life. Rather, this is a wise way in which to live. And another thing that uh, many people talk about, and it's the last thing in your notes here under Proverbs, is a great practice is to read the number, the proverb number, the chapter number, that corresponds to the day of the month. Uh, that was a challenge I think I heard when I was 12 or 13, and I did that for seven or eight years. Um, it's a very easy way to read scripture. You just read the proverb that goes along with the day. There's 31 chapters. The longest our, uh, number of days our months ever are are 31 days. So it, that's a very simple way to be getting practical instruction from God how to live and getting that in your mind. And that's, that's a great challenge, too, to encourage young people with because when you look at the entire Bible, it's big and it's daunting to get into the whole thing. But reading one chapter a day that goes along with um, the, the day of the month is a, a more attainable challenge and a good way to kind of get your feet wet. And this is the book of the Bible written to young people. So again, understanding the context helps us kind of understand how to use it. Um, we find that throughout the Bible, there's particular reasons for each book. And it helps us understand how to, to point others toward these when there's particular things going on in their life that uh, coincide with the purpose of that particular Bible book, as well as it helps us to navigate to uh, a particular place in Scripture when we are dealing with a particular uh, type of matter. And then we come to Ecclesiastes. And Ecclesiastes is about the meaning in life. Uh, people are constantly searching for purpose. They're searching for meaning. They want their life to be significant. We see this in the millennial generation a lot. Uh, the millennial generation has grown up. They've, they've, for the most part, you hear this from many of them today, they saw their parents living a lifestyle straddled with debt, straddled with college debt, uh, working two incomes. They've seen in many cases their parents hating their jobs, uh, working to get a bigger house or bigger toys. And it, it's why you see so many millennials now getting into this time tiny house movement, uh, this living in a van type of thing even, or searching for a job that's going to give them significance in life, why they're quitting so often so many things. It's because they're searching for meaning in life and they're doing it apart from Christ. We, we can't find the way to satisfy that void for fulfillment apart from the Lord. And that is what the book of Ecclesiastes is actually about. It's about finding that fulfillment, that significance, that purpose, that meaning in life. And Solomon, your second point there, he was the wisest man that ever lived, but he didn't apply it. Uh, he foolishly took many wives which influenced him toward idolatry. And what he recounts in Ecclesiastes, he refers to himself as the preacher, he refers to himself as the teacher, that he has made all the mistakes and he's warning others, don't repeat the lessons that I did. He was very wise, he, he understood a lot, but he didn't apply it. And that's an important truth. We can be wise in the sense of understanding much in God's word. But if we don't apply it, we're turning to the exact same um, error as if we never understood any of it. And so we see Solomon set that example. He chooses the fool's path and he does go down the path of idolatry. And at the end of his life, when he's writing Ecclesiastes, he's mourning in kind of a depressed and discouraged nature all the wrong decisions he's made. And because of that, the next point, Ecclesiastes is the book of him lamenting his mistakes. and He outlines them all. And if you take the time to kind of jot them down, you'll see that he, well, we'll get to that in the next point. But uh, he is addressing all the things that people still chase after today and finding that they're empty for fulfillment. Now, this book is gloomy. Uh, it is despairing. Uh, some have even posed the question throughout church history, in the church, and in the world, why is this book even in the Bible? Because it's, it's so depressed, in a sense, in how Solomon is talking. Well, the reason why it's that way is because life is gloomy, and it is despairing if you don't have the Lord in your life. Nothing else can satisfy that longing for significance and meaning. 
And so he does lament those things, but in the end of the book then, he points to the hope that we can have. Um, And if you dissect the book, Solomon shows that achievement, he builds many great works. He builds magnificent works of um, architecture, both his own house, the temple. He's very involved in coordinating massive projects. Thousands of people are working for him. Uh, He has great achievements. He amasses a harem. He amasses musicians. He amasses amasses success um, in the worldly sense, riches, pleasure, tons of recreation, even, even a lot of learning. And if you look in chapter 12 and verse 12, you find that he talks about how of the making of many books and much study, there is no end. He applied himself to learn a lot, but he found that even that, even the pursuit of knowledge could not be enough. And you tend to find that even today. You find in a lot of professor types um, that they devote themselves to a life of learning, but they kind of have that face. And you know what I'm talking about, don't you? That they devote themselves to a life of learning, and yet it can be a very wearying thing. And so Solomon tries all of these different paths, and he finds that none of them can bring true fulfillment or satisfaction. And he shows that apart from fearing God, that we will miss the point of life, miss the reason why God has given us this life. And so if you open up to Ecclesiastes chapter 12, we're actually going to see him kind of summarize that in just a moment. But our last point is this book, again, is one that is also particularly written for young people to chew on. And we're going to see that when we read these couple of verses at the end of the book. It's another book where Solomon is giving wisdom primarily to the young. Don't waste your life chasing the things that don't really matter, that won't really satisfy. And so in verse 13 and 14, the very end of this book, he says, let us hear the conclusion of the whole matter. So here's the whole point of life is what he's saying. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is man's all. For God will bring every work into judgment, including every secret thing, whether good or evil. And so there's nothing secret, nothing that you can hide from God, no pursuit you can go after that he doesn't see. The point of life is to keep God first and to keep his commandments, to live his way. And so it's another book that is geared toward young people and geared toward encouraging them to look that way. Or it also can practically be applied uh, for someone that is pursuing the things in life that cannot satisfy. So that's the purpose of this book in Scripture, to point us to the fact that only the Lord can meet that particular longing and that particular desire. And then we come tonight to the Song of Songs, or also known as the Song of Solomon. And uh, some interpreters spiritualize this entire book to be about Christ and the church. And I want to be clear, there are certain applications we can draw, but I don't believe it's appropriate to say it only has a spiritual purpose. We, we kind of saw that with what we opened up with, that when this particular book is read in synagogue, in the Jewish church service at a particular time every year, uh, they tended to do that around Passover. And so they were, they were thinking of the Lord as not only their Redeemer, uh, but as their spouse. And there is an application of Scripture to this, but I, I want to be very clear that there also is a practical application of this book. There's many reasons, and we'll hit on just a couple of those tonight, why this is a practical book about marriage too, not just a spiritual book about Christ and the church. It's, it's both and, not either or. Your second point there is, yes, the point of Scripture is to point us to the living word. So, so why people tend, why some theologians just completely spiritualize this book in their interpretations and don't ever draw any practical lessons out of it is because they recognize the point of Scripture is to point us to Jesus, right? In John chapter 1, I'll show you a couple ways in which we see that. The point of Scripture and the reason why God has given us his written word is to point us to the living word, Jesus, God wrapped in flesh. So John chapter 1 and verse 1, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And you jump down to verse 12. We learn that as many as receive Him, to them He gave the right to become children of God. And so our relationship to God is completely dependent on our relationship to Jesus. And in verse 14, it goes on to say, And the Word became flesh, that's Jesus taking on human form, He was around before this, but there was a moment in time in which he did take on human flesh. And he dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory as 
the glory of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. And so we see in this passage in John 1 that Jesus is constantly referred to as the Word, the living Word, God made flesh. And we also refer to the Bible as the Word. And the point of Scripture is to point us to Christ. However, we must be careful not to over-spiritualize the Bible. And we have a tendency to do this at times. And the reason why is because sometimes there are things we don't understand, or we give the Sunday school answer that Jesus is the answer to everything, right? Well, that doesn't mean that there's never a passage that deals with conflict uh, in how we live our life and where to apply that practically. It doesn't mean that there's never a passage that addresses a particular way to live. So, for example, if you over-spiritualize everything, the extreme of that is it leads to a view of Scripture in which you have no responsibility. Ultimately is where this line of thinking leads to where if Jesus is the point of every single thing and if he does every single thing uh, in every single passage, then we really don't have any responsibility for our sin. It's a cheap grace. It's a mushy grace. It's where this line of thinking leads if we over-spiritualize everything. And then we tend to view the physical world, if we embrace this lie, uh, the world we're living in, as something that is so sinful that there's nothing uh, redeemable within it. And that everything in the world, our existence in the world, is uh, just something um, that is going to lead us into sin. And if you jump down to the end of this section on Song of Solomon in your notes, gotquestions.org puts it really well. So I want to jump down there now. This book combats, the Song of Solomon combats two extremes. And again, these two extremes are the two ways people tend to go, not only with this psalm, but with all of Scripture. The one extreme is asceticism. It is the denial of all pleasure. It's, it's the view that everything on earth is bad. And, and where this comes into play in church history is, for example, uh, monks and nuns. They believe that they are more spiritual, that they have true spirituality because they live a single life. And that's really what's behind the whole monastic movement throughout history is this view of asceticism. That if you deny yourself and you live a, a life of taking a denial of owning any property, uh, that that'll then solve your issues of greed. And rather than dealing with these burdens at the foot of the cross and rather bringing them to Christ, whatever those particular issues are, it's embracing a life of extreme asceticism, denying and even abusing yourself because you're viewing everything in the world as bad. Uh, Martin Luther, who was a monk before he ever became the founder of the Reformation, when he was a monk, he used to go out on the cold nights when it would be below zero or it would be uh, very, very cold under freezing, definitely. And he would, um, he would take his knees and he would slam each one of them into a, a stone step up the stairs to a cathedral in the middle of the night over and over again. The reason why he did that is because he was embracing an aesthetic life. He believed that if he abused his body enough that he would then gain victory over sin in his life. And so in a sense, he was kind of working for his approval and working for his salvation. And asceticism is one extreme. And it happens in the early church in the first couple of centuries too. There's heretics that arise. There's false groups that arise that try to deny the life that God has given us um, in this world. The Bible does say that we are to deny sin in our life, but it also says that God gives us things to enjoy. It's not wrong to enjoy his blessings in this life. And so asceticism is one extreme. The other, the other extreme is hedonism, which is the pursuit of only pleasure. And that is one that came into play again throughout history and in the early church. It's that cheap grace thing I mentioned just earlier. It's the idea uh, in a more liberal train of thought that just pursue what makes you happy. You will hear this sometimes in church. You will hear people say that God wants us to be happy. Uh, well, he wants you to be holy. He's more concerned with that before you're happy. But that doesn't mean we're called to a, um, a joyless existence. A hedonistic view, however, takes the opposite extreme of asceticism, which denies everything in this life. And instead, it says that everything is um, spiritual that Jesus has done for us. And therefore, how we live in this life doesn't matter. And so there's these two extremes, and the book of the Song of Solomon really does a great job, and I believe God's given it to us, like it says here, in order to help us to combat these two extremes, because it gives us an accurate view, and God Questions summarizes it very well this way. The marriage profiled in the Song of Solomon 
is a model of care, commitment, and delight. It's not aesthetic. It's not denying. It's not saying that uh, life in this earth is all just a bad thing. It does not say that everything earthly is um, sinful. At the same time, it tells us that just pursuing pleasure is not the goal of life either. So it's this balance of showing how God intends marriage to be something uh, that we respect and that we view in a positive light. So, so jumping back up there where we left off, we got to be careful not to over-spiritualize the Bible. The song certainly speaks of human marriage between one man and one woman in a positive light. Now, Scripture is clear that marriage is an analogy that the Holy Spirit over and over again uses to help us understand our relationship to Christ. We see that in Ephesians 5, 1 Corinthians 7. You have all those listed there. Clearly, the Lord constantly takes us back to marriage. He brings us back to, uh, to parenting relationships to understand how our relationship with the Lord uh, is. He uses those analogies. So there is a spiritual meaning. But let's be careful not to over-spiritualize the whole book away. So to go on, um, marriage is something, the Song of Solomon teaches us this, and also the New Testament does, marriage is something to be respected and honored. And that is really why the Jewish people would read this. The Jewish people had a view, because God had given them his word of marriage that was completely unlike the world around them. The world around them had a hedonistic view most of the time. The hedonistic view was do whatever makes you happy, engage in anything uh, that would bring you pleasure, and that's the way all the nations around them were living. And there's times we see the people of God drawn into that and wrestle with that. But we see that God had called his people to respect and honor marriage, and even though they didn't get that always right by the time of Jesus, they had easy divorce and things like that. Um, by the time Jesus stepped on the scene and began to correct some of their false views, the point is that they had been given scripture from the very beginning to understand that marriage is the first institution God created. And there is to be a respect about this. and There's to be honor of this. And when we don't understand that, we we get caught up in all these different lies. And we see that in our culture today. If we dive into either an aesthetic view or a hedonistic view, it will distract us from the balanced view of what God intends here. Now, because marriage is to be respected and honored, this song also teaches three times, and you have the references there, three times that there are some things not to be awakened. There are blessings that God gives, but that are not to be awakened outside of the covenant that he has given. And so again, a balanced view of why God has created marriage, not a pleasure view that is all selfish and focused on you, which is how the world tends to live, or the aesthetic view, which tends to be the more religious view uh, of taking an approach to saying uh, that there is a filthiness to what God created rather than an appropriate place and an honor in how he created these, these things. It also goes on to say um, there in your notes that there is an application for us here. Culturally, what has happened in our world around us is the culture has grown more risque in regard to marriage, the jokes, the way it views marriage, the way it describes marriage. And yet the church, it's almost interesting and almost ironic, at the same time has grown more taboo on the topic, typically. Uh, there's certain things that we tend to avoid in talking about in church, but yet the world talks about all the time. Yet, let's just simply remember this. Let's not over-spiritualize this particular book because God's Word teaches us about this area of life as well. So let's go to His Word to learn what He has to say, not taking our um, instruction from the culture and not avoiding a conversation for whatever reason that we tend to avoid it. And then we come this evening to the book of Psalms. And Psalms... It has the most chapters of any book in the Bible, but it's actually not the longest book. It's probably the third longest book. I was trying to dive into that uh, some study this week. Jeremiah definitely is longer than, than Psalms. It has more words, and most likely, <clears throat> pardon me, Genesis does as well uh, in the original Hebrew. Uh, again, not talking necessarily in the English translation. Uh, but Psalms is not the longest book of the Bible, although it does have the most chapters, which is kind of an interesting fact. Now, on your last uh, page there, Psalms is the prayer book and the hymn book of the Bible. We see prayers here and we also see hymns. This was their Psalter, uh, their hymn book in Israel, and they would sing these. 
and they would uh, repeat them with one another. And, and again, the way in which they use the psalms is very interesting if you dive into Jewish tradition because there are certain psalms they would sing as they're traveling to uh, a particular feast, for example. They would sing through certain psalms from memory or they would repeat them in the synagogue. And so there was a, a rhythm in terms of how they engaged with God's word or were reminded of God's word. It was a prayer book and a hymn book. It is also poetry. It is also poetry there, your next one. Because you see, there, there's things that the Psalms speak about in other places in Scripture too. I'll show you one example here in a minute uh, that is not literal, clearly. It is figuratively pointing to something, and that's a feature of poetry. So the Psalms are poetry. And um, one example of that is that neither trees nor rivers literally clap their hands. They don't have hands. That's poetical language. And one example of that is Psalm chapter 98. And we also see similar thing in Isaiah. But Psalm chapter 98 and verse 8, I'll show you this for example. A uh, pretty good illustration of how there are things in Psalms that are poetic and they are symbolic and they're not literal. So 98.8 says, Let the rivers clap their hands and let the hills be joyful together. Clearly, that is poetical language to describe the joy of creation for its creator, not literal language. In Isaiah uh, chapter 55 and verse 12, Isaiah chapter 55 and verse 12, we see a very similar uh, wording here where it says, For you shall go out with joy and be led out in peace. The mountains and the hills shall break forth into singing before you, and all the trees of the field will clap their hands. So there, there are parts of Scripture which are using poetry, uh, which sometimes, again, I think may be kind of hard for us to grasp because we, the Bible is God's Word. And sometimes we don't recognize there's different genres. There's poetry, there's uh, wise sayings, there's stories, there's narrative. And so understanding the genre helps us to be able to interpret it correctly. And so there's these different genres, um, and we see many different types here in this book. In your notes, the Psalms contain different types of poetry, ranging from rejoicing and praise to sorrow and lament. There's actually a far greater number of Psalms that deal with lamentation than praise. Uh, but that's actually what you'll find if you rank them all and go through every one of them. There's a lot more examples of the psalmists talking about asking the Lord um, to help them in the midst of something that they don't understand. That happens much more often than them rejoicing for a blessing he's given. And so that's just kind of an interesting tidbit. You also see something in the psalms that um, uh, sometimes is interesting, and that is that you see the psalmist asking for vengeance upon his enemies. It's, it's known as psalms of imprecation, asking God to exercise vengeance and, and defense of them as they are being abused and used in the world. And again, there's a reason why God has given us these different psalms and these different categories of psalm and song. And it's this reason. Because the psalms display human emotion. Human emotion is not reprimanded by God in Scripture. Again, the, the aesthetic view, the over-spiritualizing view, would, would lead us down a path to believe that having any emotion is wrong. And that's why you see sometimes a train towards stoicism. Um, but that's not what Scripture teaches. It doesn't teach us to be like the Buddhists who try to empty their mind and completely remove themselves from pain in the world. It, it teaches us we do experience emotion, but we can bring that to the Lord. The Lord doesn't reprimand the psalmist for having deep feelings of sorrow or grief or joy uh, or um, praise. Rather, we see all of those things beautifully being able to be weaved together to point to Christ and to bring whatever the emotion that we are experiencing is, to bring that to the Lord in prayer and song. And so that's really the purpose of the psalms, teaching us how to deal with human emotion and soul. And the, another interesting thing about the book of Psalms is it also contains messianic psalms about Christ. And there's lots of these. I'm not going to dive into many of them, but just two examples are Psalm chapter 2 and Psalm 22. They clearly are speaking about things and prophesying about things that Jesus would come and do. And so even here in the Psalms, while they are praying these prayers, you have David um, at times, or the other psalmists, that are praying something or lamenting something, and at the same time, they're pointing to something that Christ is going to fulfill later on. And so you have these messianic psalms 
um, which display that Jesus, again, enters into our world. He, he can sympathize with us. It tells us in Hebrews he has walked as we have walked. He's experienced what we have experienced. And so he can sympathize and he can relate to everything that we go through in this life. And we see uh, the human heart given voice in the Psalms. Now, another interesting fact is that David wrote about half the Psalms. He actually didn't write all of them. He didn't even write necessarily the majority of them. He wrote about half, and other writers wrote the rest. Solomon writes some, Asaph, others. We don't know exactly who wrote some of these. Um, but it's a collection of prayers and hymns. And then if you look in your Bible, and if you open to the book of Psalms, your, your Bible may say this. Uh, there's a division. There's five different books within this one book. So Psalms is one book in our Bible, but it's divided up many times into five books. Book one being Psalm chapter one through 41. Book two being Psalm 42 through 72. Uh, book three being about uh, Psalm 73 to Psalm 89. Book four, Psalm 90 to Psalm 106. And then book five, Psalm 107 to 150. Now we don't know exactly why, but there it does seem to be a strong uh, Jewish tradition that says that the reason why there's five divisions goes all the way back to something we saw in our very first week together, which was with the Torah, that there were five books. Remember those books of Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy? Uh, that was the five books of the law. And that tends to be the reason you'll find in most commentators the belief behind why there are five particular books here. And if you look at each section of, of those particular verses that are outlined, there does tend to be a certain theme, if you will, to that part of the collection of this book. So one, um, one curriculum creator, this is Apologia, is a uh, Christian homeschooling curriculum and, and um, Christian school curriculum creator, Christian-based, and they explain it this way. So I've included that quote for you in your notes. They explain it that the um, five books of Psalms relate to the five books of the Torah, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, in this way. That book one are Psalms that emphasize God beside us. Book two, emphasizing God going before us. Book three, God around us. Book four, God above us. And book five, God among us. And again, you can draw those analogies to God being beside us. You see that throughout Genesis. You see God walking with Abraham, walking with Isaac, walking with Joseph. God going before us. Well, that's what he did. He parted the Red Sea for them. He took them out of Egypt. He um, prepared the way with the, the angel killing off the firstborn so that they would be able to go. God went before them. In Leviticus, God around us. Uh, Leviticus dealing with the sacrificial system, the need for blood covering, the need for God to cleanse us in order to walk with him and to be with him. Book four, God above us. Well, what do you see in numbers? You see them in the wilderness. You see them complaining. You see them wondering. And, and there's a sense of separation between them and God, him being above them. And then in Deuteronomy, uh, Moses giving his last sermon before he's going to die, he, he reminds them how God is among them, how God is among us, and he's not going to abandon them. Although the Israelites will, and he prophesies to them, they will wonder. And even though they will, God is still with them. And so the Psalms, they teach us how to pray, and they give voice to our emotions and our feelings and our soul as believers, both in the Old Testament and the New. And uh, the largest category is lament, which may kind of boggle our minds. But there's a couple of facts from some books, particularly on poetry in the Bible, I want to share with you. Um, this may seem kind of interesting, but over one-third of the Bible is composed of poetry. And so God uses poetry a lot to teach us about himself. It's a memorable way for us to grasp the truth. And that is something that the Israelites uh, use again and again. And in the Old Testament, when they have poetry, their poetry was different than our poetry. Uh, they didn't rhyme things that often. Like we may think of poetry that way. You know, roses are red, violets are blue. That's uh, not the way they would do poetry. Rather, they would do something that's called parallelism. Uh, parallelism is um, the idea of things running perpendicular to one another. It's, it's like train tracks. They have to be exactly the same distance apart for those train wheels to be able to stay on the track. And they run completely perpendicular to one another. 
And what you see the psalmists do many times is they're not trying to be um, rhyming. What they do is you have one statement and then you have a second statement that runs parallel to it and is saying the same thing in a different way. So that's a feature of Hebrew poetry throughout the Bible that they constantly had this parallelism. They were more concerned with that in the Bible um, than with trying to rhyme. Another couple of ways that I'll just kind of quote from the, uh, the yellow book that we've been using. Some other things that we find in the book of Psalms and in poetry throughout the Bible is that there are various figures of speech. There is simile, for example, where it makes a comparison between two unlike things to help us to understand something, like the idea of keep me as the apple of your eye. Well, we know there's really no apple in your eye, but it's, it's helping us to understand that we want the Lord to behold us, to have his eye upon us. And so there's a poetical thing there with the simile, comparing two unlike things to help us grasp a spiritual truth. There's also metaphor, which is a comparison uh, in which one thing describes another. For example, Psalm 23, the Lord is my shepherd. It's a metaphor. He's not literally a shepherd, but he is our shepherd in the sense that he cares for us. And so there's a metaphor there. There's hyperbole, which Jesus uses, by the way, in the Gospels as well. Hyperbole is a deliberate overstatement for the sake of emphasis. So one example of this is the psalmist talks about in Psalm 6, every night I make my bed swim with tears, I dissolve my couch with tears. He's not literally saying that he has cried so much that he's swimming. I think we get that. And he's not saying that he literally dissolves his um, couch with supernatural tears and have some great superhero ability. Rather, he's making a deliberate overstatement to help us grasp the depth of what he's saying. Jesus does the same thing when he talks about how uh, a rich person, uh, it can be so hard for them to enter the kingdom of heaven. It's like a camel that has to go through the eye of a needle. Jesus is using hyperbole to help us grasp the seriousness and the depth of what he's saying. So poetry, it plays a critical role throughout scripture. There's also a time in poetry where there is a rhetorical question that's asked. That, that question where you as the reader are to answer that in your mind. And scripture is designed that way at times as well. Uh, we see that in Psalm 106 when it says, Who can speak of the mighty deeds of the Lord or who can show forth all of his praise? It's a rhetorical question for us as the reader or for us as the worshiper who's praying that or singing that uh, to be reminded. Uh, for example, there's a modern worship song that talks about who is this king of glory? The Lord strong and mighty. And that's based on actually passages in the Psalms. But the point is to have a rhetorical question to encourage us to be asking ourselves, who is God? And it helps us to connect in our soul who the Lord is. And so all of these different poetical devices have a purpose. Another thing very common in poetry, in the Psalms, in the scripture, is personification, which is assigning human characteristics to a lifeless object. So an example of that is Psalm 104, where it says, The sun knows the place of its setting. The sun can't actually know anything, but it does things. We saw this earlier when I shared that example with you in Psalm 98 in Isaiah, how the, the trees and the rivers were clapping their hands. They don't literally, but personification helps us to understand what the Lord is getting across there. Um, so those are the four books that we are covering tonight. Um, are there any blanks that you missed that I can go back and help you fill in? Or are there any questions on poetry tonight? It's a, it's a big part of Scripture, poetry. I missed the fourth uh, blank on the Song of Solomon. Okay. Uh, fourth blank, Song of Solomon. Scripture is clear that, mm -hmm. scripture is clear that marriage, uh, that marriage is an analogy. And I don't know if I spelled that correctly. Anyway, yeah. Marriage is an analogy. Any others? So that is as such. Is that the one you're talking about? As such, some things are not to be awakened. Awakened is the, uh, the one for that one. Any others tonight? Uh-huh. Idolatry. They, they influenced him toward idolatry. <clears throat> Do we have any others? Do we have any questions or discussion on anything? Is there maybe discussion on, on Proverbs? Did it make sense when I was saying that 
Uh, there, are, there are wise principles that are not absolute promises. Did that make sense? Or is there any questions or discussion on, on that particular point? Or did that just, did we kind of miss that one? And it's easy to do. It's easy to take a verse out of context. And uh, we, we don't, I don't think we usually do that intentionally, but it, it's easy to do. So that's kind of more of an interpretation thing. But uh, <clears throat> any, other, any other discussion or on that part or anything else we covered tonight? Yeah, Well, the good news is it's going to be in that yellow book. We're going to start. Well, you're already, I think you have that. But um, page 114, 115 of this book, it gives the examples of simile, uh, metaphor. Um, yeah, simile and metaphor and then hyperbole. Uh, rhetorical question and personification. And, and there's a lot more than that. Those are just five I addressed. If I pull out my summary textbook, you, you'll get a whole lot more than that. Um, but yeah, there's all those different ways uh, in which the Lord uses uh, devices of poetry and, and literature to help us understand what he's getting across. Any other, any other questions? Comments? Nope. Well, we will close in prayer then. And next week, uh, Richard should be with us, and we'll be diving into the book of Isaiah. Father, we come before you tonight and we thank you for the opportunity to be able to once again um, get, get a, a big picture, Lord, of what you're doing in your word. And I, I pray you take that, Father, and help us not to be overwhelmed by all that there is to look at. And, and I know there's lots of blanks and lots of points, but Father, help us to, to simply be able uh, to have you, because Holy Spirit, you say that you bring to remembrance the word of God to our minds. Help us to be brought back to remembering a place in scripture when we can share that with someone else who's struggling, maybe a particular book, or when we are wrestling through something ourselves and seeking your wisdom. Father, help us to have our memory jogged about what the purpose of those books are. And Father, help us as um, we read scripture uh, to be careful, um, to, to not over-spiritualize something, or, or to not take that deception of the enemy that maybe something in this life would would be something that we cannot enjoy because we're fallen humans. But Father, you have created all things for us to enjoy in the proper boundaries, in the proper context. And help us uh, not to embrace those lies that Satan has so often thrown against the church throughout history. And Father, also guard us from, from the extreme of just pursuing uh, the things that would make us uh, happy or pleasurable or make life easy. Um, rather than the truth that you have called us to believe and put into practice. So, Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for poetry that, while sometimes it's hard to understand, it points to uh, the depth and the heart that you have for us and that we can have even that aspect of how you've created us to be able to connect with you and to be able to bring our heart and our soul to you, Father. Um, with those different longings and emotions that we all experience. We are not called to deny them. We are called to be angry and sin not. We are called to love you. We are called uh, to bring those feelings to you. But Lord, not to treat them as if somehow they're wrong for a Christian to have. Father, help us to once again walk in your truth in those areas and not to be bound by the enemy of, of pushing something away or overindulging in some area. We thank you and we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you.